It's the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. Hello. If you are a regular listener, you know that the Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Berlin's Akud, and here on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events and from those of our sister spin-off shows around the world, because it's a dead lady's revolution. And to bring it all to you takes a lot of time and effort. And to be honest, we could use a little support. So just quickly now, I'm going to tell you, we have a new Patreon fundraising plan at patreon.com slash deadladyshowpodcast. So please do check that out. But first, Katie's here. Hi there. Hi, Susan. That's Katie Darbisher, our dear co-founder of The Dead Lady Show. Uh, we have a really fun talk for our listeners today, complete with Hollywood glamour, wartime intrigue, and sheer invention. So Katie, can you tell us about our presenter? I can. It's Isabel Fargo-Cole. She's a great friend of ours, a prolific translator. She kind of specializes in East German writers. And she also writes herself in German, although she's American. She's a great person, great cook. Um, her first novel, Die Grüne Grenze, was shortlisted for the big book prize of the spring in Germany. And her second novel is coming out in September. It's called Das Gift der Biene which means the poison of the bee. Ooh. And that one's set in 90s Berlin. Looking forward to it. You didn't know that? That's no. yeah, 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 yeah. You're going to love it, actually. Oh, that's very exciting. I love bees and 90s Berlin. What can you, what can go wrong? Yes, very little can go wrong in that combination, yeah. Anyway, so she's talking about uh, Hedy or Hedy Lamar. And here she comes. Here's Isabel. I've always had more sympathy with the beast than the beauty. Poor old beast. His frightful face completely covered his real soul inside. My face is a mask I cannot remove. I must always live with it. I curse it. Heidi Lamar was born Hedwig Kiesler in Vienna on November 9, 1914. Her family was an affluent, assimilated Jewish family, and she was raised Catholic. Her mother, Gertrude, trained as a concert pianist, and her father, Emil, was the manager of Vienna's largest bank. A biographer wrote that her father encouraged her interest in how the world worked, taking walks with her and explaining the mechanics of the machinery they encountered, which may become important later. She went to finishing school, was more focused on romance than studying, and was interested in acting and beauty contests, which her parents were not very happy about because they probably saw what was coming. <laughs> That's Haiti as a starlet. Uh, the way she got there was by um, happening to take design classes, which will also become important later. On the way to school, she would walk past uh, Vienna's first film studio. She snuck in, got a job as a script clerk, then as an extra, and the rest was history. Her film debut was in a film called Geld auf der Straße in 1930. <laughs> That's the spirit, I say. <laughs> so while juggling dramatic and tragic romances, she also worked with legendary director Max Reinhardt in Vienna and Berlin, playing small film and theater roles until her fateful breakthrough in 1933, Ecstase or Ecstasy, 
a film by the Czech director Gustav Mahati, who is known for avant-garde films about women's liberated sexuality. Ecstasy has explicit moments, but it emphasizes a very avant-garde artistic mix of very symbolic images and music. Henry Miller, who saw the film when it finally got released in the US and admired it, wrote, every time I've seen the film, the reaction of the audience is the same, cheers and applause mingled with groans and catcalls. The audience is not shocked, but indignant. And why were they indignant? There was too much art and not enough sex. So I, I do recommend watching it. It is very artistic, but you're forewarned that you might be disappointed. But uh, it does have its moments. The plot, such as it is, a young woman leaves her impotent older husband and goes back to nature. So she's, for the people watching our podcast, she was just skinny dipping, which looks really nice in the seat now. And there was a picture of a horse, very symbolic. So. After skinny dipping, the horse runs away with her clothes, and this leads her to meet a handsome surveyor, and ultimately to the first on-screen depiction of a female orgasm, which was considered more shocking than the nude scenes. I'm just showing you a kind of still collage of that. For the rest, you'll just have to go to YouTube. <laughs> Haiti later claimed, uh, when she came to Hollywood, that, that she was told there wouldn't be any nude scenes or they'd be shot at a distance, and uh, also, she'd been totally clueless about the whole orgasm, so she had no idea what, what that was all about, and her expressions were caused by Mahdi sticking her with a safety pin. It's possible she was protesting too much and telling prudish Americans what they wanted to hear because, of course, nice girls don't know about that sort of thing. Now I have to admit that my dead lady was not a fascist, but in 1933, she showed her first of many strokes of bad judgment, by making the first of her six husbands an Austro-fascist Jewish munitions magnate. We have to remember she was 19 at the time, so uh, <laughs> a youthful indiscretion. His name was Fritz Mandel, and apparently his charm and wealth bowled over Haiti and her parents as well. They saw him as a promise of security in what was becoming a more and more precarious time for Jews in Europe. He was someone who hid his Jewish background and um, inherited his father's munitions plant and supplied right-wing militias with munitions. He was also not a very nice person. He was <laughs> jealous and controlling, keeping Haiti in isolation at his country villa, where, bizarrely, dinner guests included intellectuals like Franz and Alma Werfel, as well as his fascist friends like Mussolini, presumably not at the same time. Haiti later claimed that she only realized what kind of a man she was, uh, he was by uh, listening in on his conversations uh, at, at the dinner table about fascist politics and munitions technologies, another crucial detail to remember. She managed to escape in 1937 by, as she told the story, disguising herself as her maid and fleeing with a bag of jewels. <laughs> on a bicycle? Yes. Okay, you, you know... <laughs> Jewel's bicycle, it depends what version you hear. Anyway, um, already proving her sense of the dramatic and filmic. As a postscript, as after the Nazis annexed Austria, Mandel fled to Argentina, where he kept doing business with the Nazis from a safe distance. 
Hetty, on the other hand, ended up in London chatting up Hollywood producer Louis B. Mayer, who was over uh, across the pond talent scouting among all the refugees. He offered her a contract, but she was unhappy with the terms and refused. So in a scene straight from a 1930s film, she followed him back to the US on the SS Normandy in September 1937 and basically swanned about in front of him surrounded by admirers until he signed her on with better terms. Then he held a brainstorming session, uh, apparently at the A-deck ping-pong table, to come up with a new name, Hedwig not really cutting it. He settled on Haiti Lamar in memory of a tragic silent film star, Barbara Lamar, known as the girl who was too beautiful, which Haiti might in retrospect have thought not to be a very good omen. <laughs> so by the time the Normandy docked, Lamar's legend was already incipient. Then she took the train to Hollywood, and then, disappointingly, spent most of the six months of her initial contract learning English, which she hardly knew uh, to begin with, and feeling neglected by Mayer. In early 1938, however, she met this handsome gentleman. Anyone know who that is? It's Charles Boyer, who asked her to be in his next film, Algiers, where he stars as the French jewel thief, Pepe Lamoco, who is hiding in the Caspar. And Haiti is the mysterious Parisian who lures him into the clutches of the police. So the film was a big hit, and Hades' look, which she mostly thought of herself, created a trend for dark hair, center parts, and turban hats. <laughs> the film really cemented her image, especially as photographed by, now I have to tip the hat to a dead gentleman, the legendary Chinese-born cameraman James Wong Howe. So here's a clip. Do watch the camera work. So you wanted to take another look at the strange wild animal? Strange, but not so very wild. How do you like my cage? I don't know, yet. Do you like Algiers? I don't like traveling. Makes me homesick. Does it? If I can't see Paris when I open my eyes in the morning, I want to go right back to sleep. Do you know Paris? Do I know Paris? Now is Saint-Martin. Champs-Élysées. The Gare du Nord. The Opera, Boulevard Capucine. Our base. La Place, La Place Blanche. Blanche. <laughs> <laughs> what a small world. So, um, unfortunately, it was downhill from there. She was called the most beautiful woman in Hollywood, but no one really knew what to do with her. You never got very much out of this, did you? I got plenty. All I ask for, except the frosting. That kind of summed it up. <laughs> Mayer kept promising her a big film, but kept her tied up in mediocre and or chaotic projects. Also, her strong accent, uh, she was still having some problems with English, restricted her to exotic roles like the half-cast beauty in the melodrama Lady of the Tropics in 1939 because Viennese, Vietnamese, same difference, right? <laughs> On the bright side, uh, she did have some um, pretty good movies, like Comrade X from 1940, which is a darkly comic Ninochka spinoff with Clark Gable. Oh, uh, I don't like to stand here bothering you like this when you're so busy, uh, Galuka, but um, I want to talk to you. My name is Theodore. You don't look like Theodore to me. I was named at the Workers' Council. It's 
Somebody didn't have his glasses on. It is not glasses, it is the law. Street cars must be driven by males. That's why they changed me. I'm glad they didn't graft a beard on you. Okay, if you want to be Theodore. You were with my father? That's right. He's a friend of mine. He thinks because I'm running a streetcar, he can ride free. He and his friends. You will have to pay 20 kopecks, please. Put in here. So that movie showed her talent, I'd say, as a, a deadpan comedian, but unfortunately no one picked up on it. She was rarely offered good scripts and had the talent uh, for turning down good roles, like leading roles in Casablanca, Gaslight, and the film noir classic Laura. So she was given few chances to break out of the persona she'd acquired, which was sexy but phlegmatic and remote. And in fact, if her thoughts were elsewhere, who could blame her? She was a Jewish refugee, she was outraged about developments in Europe, she missed Vienna, and she was worried about her mother, who had now escaped to London, where the Blitz was now raging. Her father had died several years before. More positively, between takes, she was pursuing her hobby, which was inventing. Uh, helpful for this hobby was an affair she had in 1941 with Howard Hughes, the film director, producer, and aviator, who gave her technical assistance with her inventions. There's Hughes getting out, out of one of his airplanes. She, in return, gave him ideas for more aerodynamic airplane designs based on the form and function of bird's wings. And then came another fateful breakthrough. In 1942, Hollywood Magazine reports, the girl who broke light bulbs at the age of four so she could see how they were made created such a valuable idea for a remote-controlled device to guide airplanes in battle that the War Department considers it strictly hush-hush. In fact, it was an idea for a radio-guided torpedo. Both sides in the war at this point were trying to develop radio-guided weapons. One problem was to keep the radio signal from being jammed by the enemy. Haiti had the idea that you could do this by what she called frequency hopping, which would be to have the radio signal skip between different frequencies. She may have picked up the idea from Fritz Mandel's dinnertime conversations with his munitions clients. So the marriage was not all for, for nothing. <laughs> the idea was not entirely new. There were other people working along similar lines, but inventors were struggling with how to implement this. One of the problems here was how to synchronize the transmitter and receiver as they hopped through the frequencies. So who better to help her out than a New Jersey-born avant-garde composer whose 1926 Ballet Machanique included 16 player pianos and three airplane propellers. <laughs> this is George Antile, who worked as a Hollywood film composer and, also crucially, dabbled in endocrinology, <laughs> writing books such as The Gland Book for the Questing Male. <laughs> According to his memoir, Bad Boy of Music, Haiti came to him for advice on breast enlargements, and of course, they ended up talking about torpedoes instead. <laughs> she thought that he could help solve the synchronization problem because his experimental music uh, synchronized pianos by using piano rolls. So together, they worked out a solution that depended on two identical miniature perforated rolls, like piano rolls, one in the transmitter and one in the receiver, that would unwind and sync as the torpedo traveled to its target. They showed it to the National Inventors Council, who were very interested, and Antile and Haiti, under her then married name Markey, were granted a patent in 1942. So they offered it to the Navy free of charge, but unfortunately it met with skepticism. Antile suspected that, quote, 
The brass-headed gentleman in Washington read no further than the words player piano. My God, I could hear him saying, we can't put a player piano into a torpedo. <laughs> so sadly, the patent was not used until the 1950s after it had expired and without crediting the inventors. Haiti, meanwhile, was encouraged to help the war effort in more traditional ways, for instance, by volunteering at the Hollywood Canteen, which was a restaurant founded by star Betty Davis where GIs were served for free and Hollywood stars entertained, cooked, and waited on tables. She kept on having conflicts with her producer, Mayer, ended up leaving MGM in 1945 and starting her own production company, which was a bold move and didn't really pay off. She did do a couple of interesting but unsuccessful noirish films like The Strange Woman and Dishonored Lady, where, as you can tell, she's um, yeah, continuing that vamp image. I have the sense, reading about her, that she kind of tinkered with her image and her erotic aura in much the same way as she tinkered with her inventions, or another hobby of hers, as she mixed her own perfumes. She seems to have had a kind of a Viennese sense of irony and detachment. In private life, she was very different from her image and was very down to earth. As she wrote in her possibly completely fabricated autobiography, but this sounds like her, my face has always seemed to denote a cool, confident woman of affairs, someone perfect for smuggling spy secrets out of Asia. Inside, I am quite different. I like picnics, babies sitting on the floor, and playing Santa Claus. Most of all, I love to laugh. I couldn't smuggle anything out of Asia if my life depended on it except on an MGM soundstage. She had one last hit as the biblical temptress in the rather cheesy, Sam not just rather cheesy, Samson and Delilah from 1949 with Victor Bature. Here's a picture of, of Haiti and her mom horsing around on set with Victor. <laughs> he looks like he's enjoying it. I'm going to very quickly fast forward through her decline. The rest of her six marriages, custody battles over three children, estrangement from an adopted child, and also very Viennese addiction to psychiatrists, plastic surgery, <laughs> erratic behavior, shoplifting, and lawsuits. Just as one example, during one of her sets of divorce proceedings, she once sent her film stand-in to appear in court for her. In 1965, due to chronic financial difficulties, she signed a contract for her ghostwritten memoirs bringing things back full circle to the ecstasy scandal. It's basically a largely a soft porn account of countless affairs with both men and women. She tried to halt publication, claiming that the book was false, scandalous, and vulgar. A judge agreed with her that it was filthy and nauseating, but ruled against her, <laughs> as she had, after all, signed off on the manuscript, apparently without reading it. It became a bestseller in 1967, reviving a kind of character version of her mythos. She did then try to cash in on that by launching her own perfume. <laughs> there was a later ecstasy, but uh, that was apparently uh, no relation. This is the original ecstasy. And then became the ultimate trash icon when Andy Warhol had her played by a drag queen in his 1966 film, Haiti, about her shoplifting scandals. Well, um, there is a happy end. After a phase of reclusiveness and focusing on family and friends, in the 1990s, frequency hopping became crucial to Wi-Fi and GPS technologies. And then, at that point, her and Antal's contribution was rediscovered and honored, sadly long after his death. 
Among other things, they received the Millstar Award from Lockheed Martin. Another, we need another lawsuit before the end, though. So in 1998, she sued Corel Draw for using her image without permission. And the settlement, they were allowed to go on using it, but they gave her a lot of money, solved her financial worries. She managed to see the new millennium just barely dying in January 2000 at the age of 85. Several years later, her ashes were scattered in the Vienna woods, and in 2014, marking her 100th birthday, she was given an honorary grave in Vienna's Central Cemetery. I think that might represent frequency hopping, but I'm not sure. <laughs> the inscription quotes her words, films have a certain place in a certain time period. Technology is forever. Thank you very much. Isabel Fargo-Cole on Haiti Lamar. This is the last show of this season. We'll be back with season three very soon. So make sure you are subscribed and you'll be the first to know. Well, after us anyway. <laughs> there are, however, a couple of live shows coming up. We'll be part of the Akud Backyard Summer Program here in Berlin on July 24th. And if you happen to be in New York, there's a show at the KGB Bar Red Room on Tuesday, July 9th. You'll have a little bit of time to catch up on all of our other episodes. I think this is number 24, right? So there's 23 other ones. You know best. <laughs> I've lost track completely. And they're all fabulous, of course. Yes. I, I tell you that. That's true. I know that part. Good. <laughs> um, but we'd love it if you could support us because we're going to be working on bringing you transcripts um, that's for reference and for anyone who needs or likes to read their podcasts uh, we've noticed kind of from contacts and from google search information that we are a good source for some information about ladies that uh, you might not find any other details about in english true um, and so that's really cool and we'd like to broaden our reach on that so to help with that, we set up a Patreon account, and we're offering some rewards woo, for support. Uh, okay, so if you can support us at the $2 a month level, we will give you a shout out on social media, hey, and add your name to the support section on our website. And you are welcome to do that in honor of a loved one or a favorite dead lady, if you like. And for $5 a month, you get free entry to a dead lady show in Berlin including a free drink and a front row seat. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> sit next to me. As well as membership to our Dead Ladies Book Club, where we send you a Dead Lady-related book recommendation every month. And you get that social media shout out. Now, if you're not in Berlin, you can choose, if you like, to donate that entry fee to a cash-strapped Berliner of your or our choice. Yeah. Oh, that would be very kind. Yes. <laughs> uh, finally, for $10 a month, you get all those things, all, all, all of those things at the $5 level, um, plus your choice of some really great books, including signed copies of Jessica Miller's book, Elizabeth and Zenobia. Um, you might remember Jess's talk about Leonora Carrington in episode five. It's such a great talk, and mm. the book is really fun as well. Yeah. Or you can opt for Gentleman Jack. This is like the... Uh, 
the hot new thing, um, <laughs> hot old thing, yeah. by, <laughs> by uh, Angela Steidler, which is translated by Katie. It's translated by me. Um, and that is the first published in-depth biography of Anne Lister, who we covered in episode 12 of the podcast. And if you watch HBO or the BBC or just hang out on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> you may have heard of this lusty lady who was a pioneer in her own right. And she this was. is an, a very, very um, detailed book that covers the events in the series and many before and beyond. And yeah. if you read this book, you will know everything you need to know about Anne Lister. Well, that, if you read that and her diaries, then you really will. Also on offer is a critically acclaimed book called Seasonal Associate by Heike Geisler. Again, translated by Katie. It's not. It's not about dead ladies. It's not about no. dead ladies. But Sorry. it is about work and being a woman. It and is. it's an unconventional contemporary novel about working in an, we'll say, internet business fulfillment <laughs> center. Is that fair? Say that, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and you might have seen it mentioned in The New Yorker or The Guardian or and or the Re LA Review of Books, uh, which I have all seen all three and it was incredibly cool to see that. Yeah, it was exciting. Uh, we'll be adding more books in the future in English and in German, so keep checking back if you want to choose that level, but you're just waiting for the right book. Uh, if you'd prefer to make a one-time donation, you can do that via paypal.me slash dlspodcast. And thank you to our Patreon supporters so far. End of message. End of message. Okay. <laughs> End of message. So we have links to that Patreon on our website, as well as our Hall of Dames and some unmissable photos of today's dead lady, Haiti Lamar, at deadladyshow.com. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, and you can find that on SoundCloud, along with all the episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast which are also wherever you listen. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks to Florian and Katie, and to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Zanat. Doop, doop, boop, boop. Doop, boop, 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 boop. That's the end.